The scripture today for the third Sunday of Advent comes from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead the mother sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Can you tell, can you tell I have a cold? Yeah. No. no? Oh, praise the Lord. Okay, good. So let's just, you know, keep that voice strong. Here we go. Um, so my mom. My mom thought that Christmas was only for children. Now, from her perspective, that made sense to her. Christmas was about Santa and elves and cookies and snowflakes and hot chocolate. And it's all fun stuff. It's all stuff that kids like. And so, of course, to her, Christmas was for kids. And it was really hard for her when not only her children grew up, but her grandchildren grew up, too. I don't know if some of you are a little bit like my mom, that as you get older, Christmas is actually a little bit of a letdown. You don't have a kid to chase around. Um, you know, the kids make it fun, right? But, but most of us are kind of, I think we're kind of chasing memories and nostalgia. It's kind of like, what I notice, it's kind of like a, a, you know, kind of a secular winter festival, you know, which is kind of fun. It's kind of shallow too, right? So um, I have a solution for this. Are you ready? Here it is. What if we focus on the second coming of Christ, the second advent, what's also called the final judgment or the day of the Lord? That spices it up, doesn't it, a little bit, huh? And I want to say that this is a central belief of the Christian faith. This isn't some side thing, but this is a central thing that like Christians throughout the world all over time say, no, Christ is going to come again. That's central. That's not just like some Christians believe that, some don't. It's like this is a central belief that Christ will again come again. There is a second advent. And so during this advent season, we, we um, celebrate Christ in three, three time periods. We, we celebrate um, the past that Christ came in historically 2,000 years ago. We celebrate Christ in the present, that Christ comes into our life today. And we also least should, acknowledge that Christ will come again sometime in the future. We don't know when. 
And I think we're pretty good at acknowledging Christ coming 2,000 years ago. You know, we have these nativity sets. We kind of think about what that might look like. You know, we dress the kids up in costumes. We have a nativity play. You know, we, you know, we can kind of get into what that was like 2,000 years ago. I think we might be pretty good at acknowledging um, uh, the present, that, that, that Christ is in our life today, that we, we give thanks to God at our meals. We, we pray for other things in general. We ask God to come. We, we tell one another what God's doing in our life. Uh, we sing songs of praise to Christ here in our life now. So that's really good. But I think we are not very good at acknowledging the second advent, the future coming of Christ. And you know what? We're the poorer for it. So by the way, since we're talking about this advent, here's a question. What tense, what verb tense do we use for Advent? Do we say like Christ came? Do we say Christ comes? Do we say Christ will come? Like which, which verb tense do we use? You know what, we use all of them. It's, we use every tense, which makes no grammatical sense. But you know, I wonder if that means that they're all connected. The past, the present, the future all have a connection together. All right, well, let, let's look at the, our, uh, the scripture that we're looking at this year. This year for uh, Advent, we are in um, Isaiah, which some people actually called the fifth gospel um, because there's so much Isaiah in the gospels. The gospel writers are always quoting Isaiah, um, in particular the part about Jesus' birth and ministry. You're just going to find a lot, about, a lot of Isaiah used. Uh, um, it's one of the longest books of the Bible. There's 66 chapters Anyone like to read 66 chapter, you know, Russian novels? I mean, yeah, six, that is a really long book. And, 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 and it covers about at least 200, period, 200 years. And so a lot of people have divided Isaiah in different ways. So um, here's a really simple way, okay? It's just simple. It's not, don't, whatever. You can come up to me afterwards. But, you know, it's right. There's different ways to do it. Here's the day where I'm going to do it today, okay? Just divide it in half, okay? And so the first half of Isaiah... It's all about Isaiah coming and warning the people to say, like, you are so far from God. It doesn't work that way. Things do not go well when you are far from God. Repent, repent. Come back to God. And then, and, and then he doesn't say it that nicely, right? He has these really crazy word pictures. But in, in the midst of all of this judgment and repentance is sprinkled in these little parts of hope. Matthew and Justin have been talking about these little images of hope the last couple weeks. So, so you know, when uh, uh, Justin talked about that the people who have walked in great darkness have seen a great light. Or um, Matthew is talking about uh, the peaceable kingdom last week with animals and, you know, people, animals that shouldn't be together. We're going to get back to those guys in a minute. So, so that is like the, the first half of the book is this warning. And then there's this part that Isaiah doesn't include, and, and, it, and it's something like this. You know, we know that there was this, this uh, one nation, they had a civil war, and Israel was in the north, and Judah's on the bottom, and there's all the prophets, most of the prophets prophesy to these guys saying, you guys, come back to God. And the northern country of Israel gets invaded by the, they don't do it, they don't come back to God, okay? Spoiler, no, no, no. So, so they don't come back to God. So, so you've got Israel, and they get invaded, not just invaded by the Assyrians, but, you know, totally smashed. There is no more Israel. And then other prophets, including Isaiah, are still prophesying to Judah. Like, come on, Judah. I got a chance. You can do this. Come back, come back, come back. And Judah doesn't. And Babylon comes from the east, devastates them, and also takes their best and their brightest 
and takes him to exile in Babylon. Okay, that's the part Isaiah doesn't talk about. So now we get to part two of Isaiah, the second half. And that's the part where they're coming back from that exile. And so part two of, of Isaiah, which I'm getting to talk about, and my, uh, Matthew will talk about next week, is like the good part, like the, the happy part. So this is the part that's actually pretty darn hopeful. Almost all of the second half of Isaiah is filled with these beautiful, beautiful, powerful words of hope and promise. So that's, that's kind of how... Uh, to, to, to uh, uh, just divide Isaiah. And, and I'm talking about Isaiah because I think some of us are like, ah, I don't, well, actually, let me get to that in a minute. Okay, so, so, so anyway, this Isaiah 40 passage, um, yeah, there we go. So this Isaiah 40 passage, you know, there's this prophecy, and, and you have to ask, when is this prophecy going to be fulfilled? And so the first time, I'll oh, keep the scripture back on. I like to hang on to it for a long time. There we go. Yeah, good. Okay, so, so the scripture being fulfilled, when does that happen? Well, it happens more than once. So the first time the scripture was fulfilled is when these people are coming back from exile. And there's a promise, and the promise is this. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh, everyone's going to see that. And what that means is after all these years of abandonment where the city of, of Jerusalem has been destroyed, the temple's been destroyed, that the glory of God's going to come back to that. That what was so messed up and broken and destroyed, that is not the last word. But the scripture will be fulfilled and the glory of the Lord will fill the temple again and people will see God again. So that actually was fulfilled. The temple was rebuilt. The glory of God filled that temple again. People started to pay more attention to the word of God for a season. It was, it was kind of fulfillment. Very hopeful. Okay, but I'm, I'm going to keep focusing on this Isaiah thing. I think some of you are like, okay, that's helpful. That's pretty good. That, that scripture got fulfilled. Um, I, I actually kind of missed the nativity story. How come, we're not, how come we're not doing Matthew or Luke? Why are we doing Isaiah? I mean, let's be honest. If I were to give you a gift, a book, a book of poems and prophecy, or a book of stories, what would you like? Amy, don't be offended with me. Who would like a book of poetry? Yeah, Amy, Amy Sawyer. She's a poet. <laughs> Who would like a book of stories? Right? You know, so I think we're already a little predisposed not to get into Isaiah. We're like, oh, it's prophecy, it's poetry. I don't understand what he's saying. Um, you know, I, I think... I think some of us might be bummed out. There was a New York Times reviewer who was reviewing some children's Christmas books a few years ago, and they, as he or she was reviewing the books, they said this. You know, in terms of plain narrative, the nativity story is the best. It's got pretty much everything you would want. A journey, a baby, a mass murderer, music, animals, refugees, the kindness of strangers, and big, big special effects. And then, and then the, the reviewer goes on to say, you know, when you start adding, you know, these the little chubby children, um, uh, angels, and little drummer boys, they're like, we don't need the extra stuff. The nativity story is amazing. And I wonder if some of you are like, yeah, so how come we're not, why are we doing Isaiah? Let's get back to the other stuff. Because it's not complete. If we just look at the nativity story, we're missing out on some things. There's at least two other texts we need. We need John's Gospel, and we need Isaiah, if not some other prophets. Because Matthew and Luke are actually kind of small. They talk about these people with names, and this place, and this time. 
And I think if we only stay with Matthew and Luke's gospel, it can actually look kind of small. But when you add John's gospel, when you add all this prophecy from Isaiah, you're like, this is like a cosmic universe, you know, mind-blowing story here. So we need Isaiah. So I'm really glad we're in Isaiah. But you say, I still don't like prophecy and poems. I said, don't worry, because Isaiah is a really good writer, and he uses word pictures, these images that will stick in your head and make you understand the nativity more. So for instance, last week, Matthew spoke on Isaiah 11, which is a very common one. You know, the wolf is going to live with the lamb, and... Um, you know, the leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion, every, you know, all these animals that shouldn't get along are going to get along really well, and this little child is going to lead him. Well, here we go. This is, um, I think you guys might have seen this. This is probably one of the top 10 most popular American paintings. It's called Peaceable Kingdom. Oh, hey, Isaiah 11. And a Quaker named Edward Hicks painted that. You can see it in the National Gallery of Art for free. See, that's just a picture. That's a great word picture, that the words of Isaiah are so concrete in his word pictures, you can actually paint it. It's harder to paint grace and glory and things like that, but you can paint those animals. And that word picture is a picture that talks about peace. Here's what peace could look like. OK, we're going to get back to that picture later on. But I just want to say that Isaiah uses these word pictures, and it's really, really helpful for, for us to understand the nativity. So let's get to the next uh, part of Advent, which is John the Baptist. Okay, I think we have a picture of him coming up. Yeah, Mr. Advent himself. So remember, John the Baptist is the guy who comes right before Jesus. And he says stuff like, prepare the way. Prepare, wait, prepare the way. Didn't we just read? Yes, Isaiah 40. John the Baptist is almost living out Isaiah 40 in what he does, even though John lived 800 years after these words of Isaiah. Huh, it's so interesting. And so it's funny that, that not one gospel, not two, not three, but all four gospels, when they mention John the Baptist, all four gospels mention Isaiah 40 passage. So here's an example. If you just put Luke and Matthew, I mean Luke and Isaiah together, same thing. And then Luke puts a finer point on it. Like if you don't know that quote's from Isaiah, let me tell you, that quote's from Isaiah. Okay, again. What the gospel writers are doing is they're connecting the dots. That the words of Isaiah from 800 years ago are being fulfilled through John the Baptist, through Jesus' birth. That's the second fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. And we can live off the promises of the past of what has been, and we can live off the promises of what will be. That's really helpful for us. Okay, so I want to focus on three word pictures. Um, in Isaiah 40, we've got wilderness and mountains being lowered and valleys being raised. We'll just take three of them for today. Uh, maybe we'll, I don't, well, I don't know. Whatever. We'll see where the spirit leads. Okay, so anyway, so, so this word picture of wilderness, that, that somehow what happens comes from the outside. It comes from the wilderness. It's not from the mainstream. That when God comes, it's often in an unexpected way, from an unexpected place. And then there's two more word pictures of these, these valleys being raised and these mountains being lowered. And I, I want to give a, a, a word picture. Yeah, that guy. 
I heard last Sunday worship was awesome here. I heard that there was great baptisms and um, uh, the choir was amazing. And Phil and I missed it because we were celebrating our 20th, 20, oops, whoops, no, that's all right, 28, our 28th wedding anniversary. And <laughs> it's my 27-year-olds over here. Anyway, uh, my uh, 20, oh, you're not 27 either, sorry. <laughs> uh, you know who does the numbers in our family. Anyway, so, so um, we were celebrating our anniversary. We went to Richmond, Virginia, because we'd never been there. And um, wow. Richmond's a lovely city. Yeah, and we had a great time. But there were some really off-putting things we saw in the capital of the Confederacy. Um, one was a place called Monument Avenue. And if you haven't been there, there are these monuments of different Confederate heroes. Um, and they're huge. I mean, they're, you're not talking like little statues. You're talking like monster statues. And they're actually really well executed. Like just artistically, you're like, whoa, that's a really good sculpture. <sighs> but you know, it's disturbing. So let me give you an example of mountains being lowered and valleys raising. I don't know if you read about this in the Washington Post. Next slide. Go ahead. And, oh, that, well, I'm sorry, back to the other one. That, so that's Jeb Stewart. He was a big Confederate. <laughs> War general, and look at his look at his look at the tail. Oh, look at his look at the tail of that. Kind of cool, you know, cool horse tail. Well, look what look what statue got put up uh, last Tuesday. Next slide, please. There we go. This is a statue by the artist Kahindi Wiley. Kahindi Wiley is the uh, artist who also painted uh, Barack Obama's uh, presidential portrait in the uh, uh, National Portrait Gallery, and it was unveiled uh, two blocks from Monument Avenue on Tuesday. And he took Jeb Stewart's statue, that tail and everything, and he put upon it an African-American man with this crown of dreadlocks, a hoodie, sneakers, no weapon, sitting powerfully upon a horse. I don't have all the time to get into Kendi Wiley's um, uh, art. I would love to. But in general, what he does is he takes uh, classic Western white European art, uh, you know, any of those things where, you know, a guy's on a horse with uniform and weapons, and he puts an unknown person of color who he just saw maybe in a, in a street in New York or some other city, he puts them on the horse. In the same manner, Kahindi Wiley lowers the mountains of racism and starts to raise the valleys of equality. He, he lowers the mountain that only people with power can get a statue and raises the valley that even someone who is unknown and marginalized can get an awesome statue. It's a word picture. It's a word picture. There's a whole lot of Isaiah 40 going on here. Here's the kicker. You know the name of the statue? It's called Rumors of War. You're like, Rumors of War, Rumors of War. Isn't that a Bible image? Why, yes, it is. When Jesus talks in Matthew, when someone says, hey, when are you coming again? When's the second advent? When's the second coming? Well, another passage, he says, you know, we don't really know. We'll get to that. But, but he says, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. 
And that is what Gehenna, he'll, in an interview, he won't explain the Bible part, but he'll say, yes, the, the name of the statue came from a Bible verse. Is this a sign of the second coming? Where the things that have been powerful and mighty and have oppressed things start to be reversed. Is this a sign of it? It's not a fulfillment. Come on, this is reality. Things are not as they are. But is that a sign? Is that an encouragement? Yeah, it is. It is. Rumors of war. I wonder if the statue is a word picture of the second coming, when ultimately all things will be made right, something to encourage us and give us hope that those with blood on their hands are lowered and those who have shed blood are raised. I don't know. Oh, the other thing about that statue, here, this will encourage you. It was a horrible day. It rained, it rained cats and dogs that day in Richmond. And then when they were unveiling the cloth, the, the cloth that covered the statue, it got stuck on that horse tail. And they couldn't get it off. And they actually had to like wait and wait and get the fire truck out in the ladder. And then the, you know, the fireman took off the, the thing. And, and I say that just because you think it's all simple, and it's not. There's, all, there's always all kinds of irritation and problems and setbacks. So even in that, I thought that's kind of cool. Anyway, OK, so what is the second advent? It's when Christ will come again. The, the early church had these creeds. They're like, how do we distill Christian theology in kind of a short way that you can memorize? So the Apostle Creed has a line that says, Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. The Nicene Creed says um, he's going to come again in his glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I really do want to talk about judgment, but I have no time today. So uh, talk to Justin about that. Um, so, so here's my question. Is the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, yet another fulfillment of uh, Isaiah? You betcha. You betcha. See, here's why we need to know the Old Testament is because it wasn't just old like back then and it's all over. It still has resonance now. That's why I'm so glad we're actually in Isaiah because I want us to kind of understand the Old Testament and how it all fits together. Yeah, it's, it's yet a third or fourth or how many times, just another fulfillment. OK, and there's two extremes, I think, when we have the second advent. On one extreme in the churches, there's a, a, there's a few churches um, that are almost exclusively focused on the end times. You know, these are the churches where they, they really spend a lot of time thinking, no, it's here, it's now, this is going to happen. We're going to sell our homes. We're going to quit our jobs because Christ is coming you know, next Friday. Um, and and um, uh, and yet Jesus himself says, no one, not even me, knows the time or the place. That's just up to the Father. So spending time on that probably isn't a good use of time. But I got to say, I appreciate that they're including that part of the, go of, of, of the gospel, right? That is part of the gospel. Christ will come again. That's a good thing. On the other hand, I think this is a majority of churches, including Christ City. Um, we're folks that never think about, we never teach or talk about the second coming. Just, we just don't do it because it's... We don't want to be weird, or it just feels very abstract, or it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come. You know, why, you know. Uh, and I, again, I think we're the poorer for it. And as I said before, this is not a side doctrine. It's found. The Gospels, most of the letters of the New Testament, and again, most of the, many, many of the prophecies. Okay, so here's why we're the poorer for it. We all know that our past affects our present. Right? Like the families we were born in, the time we were born, where we were born, all of that past stuff affects our present. Here's the thing that I think we forget the future uh, affects our present. How we think about the future, what we believe will happen in the future, will affect our present. 
Um, I, I don't know about you, but these, thank the Lord it's sunny today, but these cold, dark, rainy days, punctuated by very, very long, dark, cold nights, has withered this Californian soul. You know, I don't know about you, but just feeling, feeling a little bit blah. We um, have several friends that have really big struggles that we're praying for. Um, added to the fact that Phil and I have no idea what we're going to do when we grow up. And it, it just makes for less than sunshiny days. Um, in fact, recently I, re I received a prayer card um, from someone in this church that simply wrote um, prayer, uh, quote, for better days. I'm like, oh, amen, sister. <laughs> uh, but here's the deal. With the second advent, this is not the end. We have not peaked. As one song puts it, there is a louder shout to come. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, turn, you know, take that frown and turn it upside down, positive thinking, optimist, pessimist, pessimist that kind of stuff. Um, I'm talking about the Christian virtue of hope. The second coming reminds us to hope, that we have hope that what will come will make things right, that what will come We'll bring, we'll bring appropriate justice. That will come, we'll bring appropriate judgment. That will come, will be a reordering of all things, and it will be right. <sighs> the virtue of hope. I think the presence that we have in Jesus now through the church, through the Holy Spirit, through prayer, through whatever ways you connect to the presence of Jesus now, of course, is connected to the future presence. But, but there is a distinction. As Paul says elsewhere, right now we see through a glass darkly or dimly, but there will be a time when we see face to face. Isn't that thrilling? All of us. The, all people, all flesh will see the glory of God. The second coming will affect everyone. Everyone will see the face of Jesus. And Jesus' appearing will be for those of us who have known him and loved him and longed for him in, 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 in the present. It'll be like meeting someone that you've only texted with, that you've only spoken to on the phone. It's like so much more because when you meet face to face, you get to see like, uh, you know, just expressions and tones and all this stuff. It's just so much more face to face at last. And this is the good news that Jesus will come back to us that Jesus will reorder our world. We do not have to go to him. There will be fulfillment of this longing. This is the second coming. Christ will come again, and it is so hopeful. Christ has come into our life presently, and that makes heaps of difference. But we don't stop there. There's, there again, there is a greater shout to come. We will see him face to face. Uh, you know, we always talk about this. Uh, we live between the first and second advent. I don't know if it's like advent 1.5 or what, but we, we live between the, 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 the already and the not yet. Um, you know, I love the Lord of the Rings example, um, which is, you know, it starts with Fellowship of the Rings and it ends with Return of the King. I, want the, I like that Fellowship of the Rings. It sounds very communal. I really long for the Return of the King. But you know, right now we're in the two towers. <laughs> God, what a boring title, the two towers. I mean, like, you know, and it just, it just, to me, it just speaks of war and struggle. Dang it, and that's what we're in. So if we're not hoping for the return of the king, it sure makes the two towers pretty grim. 
So what can we do in the meantime? Let's go back to Peaceable Kingdom and Edward Hicks. I think he can help us. So like I said, Edward Hicks was a, was a Quaker. And there's one more part of the painting that I purposely did not uh, point out. In the back of this Peaceable Kingdom uh, slide, uh, he always puts Quakers and Native Americans in Pennsylvania working on a peace treaty. Every time. He painted this portrait between 60 and 80 times. 60 and 80 times he painted it. That's why you can see so many of them if you travel across the US. You'll say, wait, they have a peaceable kingdom. Oh, you have a peaceable kingdom. There's lots of peaceable kingdom paintings out there. 60 to 80 times, imagine that. And Hicks believed, and I, he's right on with this, that, that, that this treaty, treaty is a tangible sign of the kingdom. It's a tangible sign of, of the peaceable kingdom that, that, that what was happening during his lifetime matters. It's not separate. So he always, always did that. But here's the deal. Sometimes when Hicks painted the animals, they wouldn't sit down. Sometimes the lion is licking his lips at the lamb. Sometimes the little child that's going to lead them is about to fall into a hole. Sometimes the, the little sheep are trying to get up and go. Sometimes Edward Hicks got discouraged. And I think he kept painting it and painting it. I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't feel it. So I'm going to paint these animals kind of crazy and restless. And other times he felt like, no, no, no. It's going good. It's going good. It's going to be OK. And why did he do that? We actually put this peaceable kingdom by every place we live. We put it right by the door. And we put it by the door because as we leave the house, it reminds us several things. It reminds us that these earthly things like treaties, relationships, land, money, power, all of that stuff matter dearly to God. It reminds me, because I know that Hicks painted this so times that some days are going to be uppers and some are going to be downers. That's OK. It's still the peaceable kingdom. It's powerful. I think he, used, he painted it so much to, to work through his discouragement and to keep believing. So I was looking at the peaceable kingdom this week, and I had a new insight that I hadn't had ever, which was, how come? Let's go to another one, what, front or back, or it doesn't really matter. Yeah, that's a good one. How come the animals are always in front and the peace treaty's in the back? Like, I was thinking, like, why wouldn't you put the peace treaty in front and the animals in the back, right? Because the peace treaty actually seems a lot more concrete than the animals. Why? Why do you do that? Why would he do that? Shouldn't the peace treaty, I mean, then this peace treaty between Quakers and the Native Americans, I mean, that's, that's going to save lives or kill lives. Like, shouldn't that be front and center? That seems really, really important. And what I realized is, no, the word of God needs to be front and center because we're going to filter all the other events of our life through the word of God. We need word pictures that capture our imaginations no matter what situations we're part of. We need to know the truth that, yes, mountains will be lowered and valleys will be raised, that a highway will be made in the desert. Uh, the verse, verse 8, um, says it really clearly. The grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That's 
the center thing. That's what I think motivated Hicks to keep going on. It wasn't the peace treaty, as important as that was, but that God's word was there. We need to be reminded, the word of God, that more will come. So we're going to end this way with a simple prayer found in scripture that says, come, Lord Jesus, come. Uh, uh, band, come on up. Here's how it's going to work. I always do this to you. Um, this is participatory. We have some mountains here. We have some valleys here. We have some things that have not made level. We have some, some things that are not right. And what I want you to do is one by one, if you are brave, lift up your head like that so everyone can hear, is pray out one sentence, something that you want to see change come to. Something that could be for you, could be for this church, for the city, for the world. Just one thing you want. When that person finishes, we're going to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And then someone else is going to lift up something that they want. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And we'll just see how long the Holy Spirit does this. And then we'll continue to worship. Do you got it? Please don't pray like this. Oh, so irritating. I want, you to, I want you to pray as loudly as possible, even if you hurt your voice. And I want you to keep it short. Okay? Just a sentence. Can we do that? And everyone has the response, come, Lord Jesus, come. We're praying with that person. We pray as a community together. Are you ready? Okay, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for Isaiah's words. We thank you that uh, there is a promise of fulfillment, that we've seen this fulfilled already, and we long for the time when it is perfectly fulfilled. And so, Lord, we give you the aches and pains and desires of this present moment, and we pray that you would come, that you would come in your fullness, Lord. Lord, put on people's hearts their concerns. Help us to pray together as a community. And now I open it up to the congregation. Father, we pray that you would just mend broken families. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray that you bring an end to violence. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray that you bring salvation to our children. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Make way for an end to displacement and more affordable housing in our city. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That will be a church where people don't fall through the cracks. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, that we would be like the Acts Church, that there would be no need, no need among us. Mm. Come, Lord Jesus, come. 
And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.